Section 16 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Natalie Gray. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 8, Part 2, Across the Desert of Despair. Following the guidance of a few rude landmarks of piled brush, we discover, a few miles off to the left, and on the eastern environ of the slough-veined basin, a considerable body of tents and a herd of grazing camels. The sowers pronounce them to be a certain camp of Imuks that they have been expecting to find somewhere in this vicinity, and with whose chief the Khan says he is acquainted. Wending our way thither, we find a large camp of about fifty tents, occupying a level stretch of clean, gravelly ground, slightly elevated above the mud-flats. The tents are of brownish-black goat hair, similar in material to the tents of Kurds and Iliauts. In size and structure, they are larger and finer than those of the Iliauts, but inferior to the splendid tent palaces of Kurdistan. A couple of hundred yards from the tents is a small spring of water, enclosed within a rude wall of a loosely piled stone. The water is allowed to trickle through this wall and accumulate in a basin outside. Here, as we ride up, are several women filling goatskin vessels to carry to the tents. The tent of the chief stands out conspicuously from the others, and the Khan, desirous of giving his brother, as he now terms the Aimuk chieftain, a surprise, suggests that I ride ahead of the horsemen and dismount before his tent. This capital little arrangement is somewhat interfered with by the fact that a goodly portion of the male population present have already become cognizant of our presence, and are standing in white-robed groups about their tents, trying with hand-shaded eyes to penetrate the secret of my strange appearance. Nevertheless, I ride ahead and alight at the entrance to the chief's tent. The chief is a middle-aged man of medium height and inclined to obesity. He and all the men are arrayed in garments of coarse white cotton stuff throughout, loose pantaloons bound at the ankles, and an overgarment of a pattern very much like a nightshirt. On their heads are the regulation Afghan turbans, with long dangling ends, and their feet are encased in rude moccasins with upturned toes. As I dismount, and the chief fully realizes that I am a Ferengi, his face turns red with embarrassment. Instead of the smiles or the grave kindliness of a Kurdish sheik, or the simple childlike greeting of an Iliaut, the Aimuk chief motions me into his tent with a brusque, offish manner, his countenance all aglow with the redness of what almost looks like a guilty conscience. With the intuition that comes of long and changeful association with strange peoples, the changing countenance of the Afghan chief impresses me at once as the fiery signal of inbred Mussulman fanaticism lighting up spontaneously at the unexpected and unannounced arrival of a lone Ferengi in his presence. It savors somewhat of bearding a dangerous lion in his own den. He certainly betrays deep embarrassment at my appearance, which, however, may partly result from not yet knowing the character of my companions, or the wherefore of this strange visitation. When my escort rides up, his whole demeanor instantly undergoes a change. The cloud of embarrassment lifts from his face, and he and the Khan recognize and greet each other cordially as brother, and kiss each other's hands. 
some of his men standing by exchanged similar brotherly greetings with the mirza and the mudbake after duly refreshing and invigorating ourselves with sundry bowls of doke the inevitable tomasha is given and the chief asks the khan to get me to ride up before one row of tents and down the other for the edification of the women and children curious groups of whom are gathered at every door the ground between the two long even rows of tents resembles a macadam boulevard for width and smoothness and i give the wild aimuk tribespeople a ten minutes exhibition of circling speeding and riding with hands-off handles a strange and novel experience surely this latest triumph of high western civilization invading the isolated nomad camp on the dashtina umid and disporting for the amusement of women and children some of the women are attired in quite fanciful colors turkish pantaloons of bright blue and jackets of equally bright red render them highly picturesque and they wear a profusion of bead necklaces and the multifarious gewgaws of semi-civilization the younger girls wear nose-rings of silver in the left nostril with a cluster of tiny beads or stones decorating the side of the nose the wrists of most of the men are adorned with bracelets of plain copper wire about the size of ordinary telegraph wire they average large and well-proportioned and seem intellectually superior to the iliauts a very striking peculiarity of the people in this particular camp is a sort of lisping hissing accent to their speech when first addressed by the chief i fancied it simply an individual case of lisping but every person in the camp does likewise another peculiarity of expression that while not peculiar to this particular camp is made striking by reason of its novelty to me at this time the use of the expression o oh, as a term of assent in lieu of the persian bale the sowers from their proximity to the frontier have sometimes used this expression but here in the aimu camp i come suddenly upon a people who use it to the total exclusion of the persian word the change from the bali sahib of the tabas villagers to the o oh, o oh, o oh, of the afghan nomads is novel and entertaining in the extreme and i sit and listen with no small interest to the edifying conversation of the khan the mirza and the mudbake on the one side and the aimuk chieftain and prominent members of the tribe on the other standing behind the chief who sits cross-legged on a persian numud is a handsome intelligent-looking man who seems to be the most pleasant-faced and entertaining conversationalist of the nomads the khan grows particularly talkative and communicative the evening hours flow on and while addressing his remarks and queries directly to the chief he gazes about him to observe the effects of his words on the general assembly gathered inside and crowded about the tent entrance the pleasant-faced man does far more talking in reply than does the chief himself in reply to the khan's innumerable queries he replies in the peculiar hissing shibboleth of the camp oh 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 busara busara sometimes the khan delivers himself of quite a lengthy disquisition and as his remarks are followed by the assembled nomads with the eager interest of people who seldom hear anything but the music of their own voices the interesting individual above referred to sprinkles his assenting oh 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 thickly along the line of the khan's presumably edifying narrative now and then the chief himself chimes in with a quiet here also in this camp of surprises and innovations 
do I first hear the word India used in lieu of Hindustan among Asiatics. The fatigue of the day's journey and the imperfect rest of the two preceding nights cause me to be overcome with drowsiness early in the evening, and I stretch out alongside the bicycle and fall into a deep sleep. An hour or two later I am awakened for the evening meal, flat, pancake-like sheets of unleavened bread, inferior to the bread of Persia, and partaking somewhat of the character of the chupaltis of India, boiled goat, and the broth preserved from the same, together with the regulation mast and doke, constitute the aimuk supper. A liberal bowl of the broth, an abundance of meat, bread, mast, and doke, are placed before me on a separate wooden tray, while my escort, the chief, and several of his men gather around a communal spread of the same variety of edibles. A crowd of curious people occupy the remainder of the space inside and stand at the door. As I rise and prepare to eat, all eyes are turned upon me as though anticipating some surprising exhibition of the strange manners of a Ferengi at his meals. Surveying the broth, I motion the Khan to try and obtain a spoon. The chief looks inquiringly at the Khan, and the Khan, with the gladsome expression of a person conscious of having on hand a rare piece of information for his friends, explains that a Ferengi eats soup with a spoon. The chief and his men smile incredibly, but the Khan emphasizes his position by appealing to the Mirza and the Mudbake for confirmation. Eat soup with a spoon? queries the chief in Persian, and he casts about him a look of unutterable astonishment. Recovering somewhat from his incredulity, however, he orders an attendant to fetch one, which shortly results in the triumphant production of a rude wooden ladle. These uncivilized children of the desert watch me drink broth from the ladle with most intense curiosity. In their own case, an attendant tears several of the sheets of bread into pieces and puts them in the broth. Each person then helps himself to the broth-soaked bread with his fingers. What broth remains at the bottom of the bowl is drunk by them from the vessel itself in turns. After consuming several generous chunks of gusht bread and mast and broth, and supplementing this with a bowl of doke, I stretch myself out again and at once become wrapped in sound, refreshing slumbers that last till morning. It is a glorious morning as, after breakfasting off the cold remains of the meat left over from the evening meal, we bid farewell to the hospitable Aimuk camp and resume our journey. As we leave, I offer to shake hands with the chief to see if he understands our mode of greeting. He seizes my hand between his two palms and kisses it. For the first few miles the country is gravelly and undulating, after which it changes to a sort of basin partially covered by dense patches of tall, rank weeds. On either side are rocky hills, almost rising to the dignity of mountains. The rain and melting snow evidently convert this basin into a swamp at certain periods, but it is now dry. A mile or so off to the right we catch a glimpse of some wild animal chasing a small herd of antelope. From its size and motion, I judge it to be a leopard or cheetah. The sowers regard it, bounding along after the fleet-footed antelope, with lively interest. They call it a bob, tiger, and say there are many in the reeds. It looks quite a likely spot for tigers, and it is not at all unlikely that it may have been one, for, while not plentiful hereabout, Tigris Asiaticus occasionally makes his presence known in the patches of reed and jungle in southern Afghanistan and Seistan. 
all three of the sowers are frisky as kittens this morning, the result, it is surmised, of the generous hospitality of the Aimuk chief. Gusht galore and rich broth cause their animal spirits to run riot. Like overfed horses, they feel their oats as they sniff the fresh and invigorating morning air, and they point toward the shadowy form of the racing bob a mile away and pretend to take aim at it with their guns. They sing and shout and swoop down on one another about the basin, flourishing their swords and aiming with their guns, and they whip their poor, long-suffering yahoos into wild, sweeping gallops as they swoop down on some imaginary enemy. This wild hilarity and mimic warfare of the desert is kept up until the ragged edge of their exuberance is worn away, and their horses are well-nigh fagged out. We then halt for an hour to allow the horses to recuperate by nibbling at a patch of reeds. About ten miles from the Aimuk camp, the country develops into a wilderness of deep, loose sand and boulders. Across this sandy region stretches a range of dark volcanic hills. The bases of the hills terminate in billows of whitish-yellow sand. The higher waves of the sandy sea stretch well up the sides, like giant ocean breakers driven by the gale up the side of the rocky cliffs. It is a tough piece of country, even for the sower's horses, and dragging a bicycle through the mingled sand and boulders is abominable in the extreme. The heat becomes oppressive as we penetrate deeper into the belt of sand hills, and after five miles of desperate tugging, I become tired and distressed. The sowers lolling lazily in their saddles, well-nigh sleeping, while I am struggling and perspiring, form another chapter of experience entirely novel in the field of European travel in Asia. Usually it is the natives who have to sweat and toil and administer to the comfort of the traveler. Revolving these things over in my mind and becoming really wearied, I suggest to the Khan that he change places for a brief spell and give me a chance to rest. The idea of himself trundling the Aspi Awan appeals to the Khan as decidedly novel, and he bites at the bait quite readily. Mounting his vacated saddle, I join the Mirza and the Mudbake in watching him struggle along through the sand with it for some two hundred yards. Along that brief course, he topples over with it not less than half a dozen times. The novel spectacle of the Khan trundling the Aspi Awan arouses his two comrades from the warmth-inspired semi-torpidity of their condition, and whenever the Khan topples over, they favor him with jeers and laughter. At the end of two hundred yards, the Khan declares himself exhausted and orders the mudbake to dismount and try it. This, however, the mudbake bluntly refuses to do. After a little persuasion, the Mirza is induced to try the experiment of a trundle. It is but an experiment, however, for, being less active than the Khan, the first time he tumbles the bicycle over, finds him sprawling on top of it and fearful lest he should snap some spokes, I take it in hand again myself. Another couple of miles and the eastern edge of the sandy area is reached, after which a compensational portion of smooth gravel abounds. Shortly after noon, another small camp of nomads is reached, some half-dozen inferior tents pitched on the shelterless edge of an exposed gravelly slope. The afternoon is oppressively hot, and the men are comfortably snoozing in all sorts of outlandish places among the scrubby camel-thorn. Only the women and children are visible as we approach the tents, but youngsters are dispatched forthwith and lo, several tall, white-robed figures seem to rise up literally out of the ground at different spots round about. 
they were burrowed away under the low bushy shrubbery like rabbits the women and children among these nomads always seem industriously engaged the former with domestic duties about the tents and the latter tending the flocks but the men put in most of their unprofitable lives loafing sleeping and gossiping we are not invited into the tents but bread and mast is provided and while we eat four men hold the corners of an ample blue turban sheet over us to shelter us from the sun spread out on sheets and on the roofs of the tents are bushels of curds drying in the sun the curds are compressed into round balls the size of an apple and when dried into hard balls are excellent things to put in the pocket and nibble along the road here we learn that the harood is only one farsak distant and a couple of stalwart young nomads accompany us to assist us across at birjand the harood was deep as a house at our last night's camp we were told that it was fordable with camels here we learn that though very swift it is really fordable for men and horses first we come to a branch less than waist deep my nether garments are handed to the khan in the pocket of my pantaloons is a purse containing a few karens while engaged in fording this branch the khan ferrets out the purse and extracts something from it which he deftly slips into the folds of his kammerbund all this i silently observe from the corners of my eyes but say nothing emerging from the stream the wily khan points across the intervening three hundred yards or thereabout to the main stream and motions for me to go ahead the discovery of the purse and the purloined karens has caused all the latent cupidity of his soul and he wants me to ride ahead so that he can straggle along in the rear and investigate the contents of the purse at his leisure while winking at the amusing little act of petty larceny already detected i do not propose to give his kleptomaniac tendencies full swing and so i meet his proposal to soar and go ahead by peremptorily ordering him to take the lead arriving at the bank of the harood i retire behind a clump of reeds and fold my money belt full of gold up in the middle of my clothes making a compact bundle with my gossamer rubber wrapped around the outside the river is about a hundred and fifty yards wide at the ford with a sandbar about midstream and is not above shoulder deep along the ridge that renders it fordable the current however is frightfully strong like the indians of the west the afghan nomads are accustomed from infancy to battling with the elements and are comparatively fearless in regard to rivers and deserts and storms etc such at least is the impression created by the conduct of the two young men who have come to assist us across the bicycle my clothes and all the effects of the sowers are carried across on their heads the rushing waters threatening to sweep them off their feet at every step but nothing is allowed to get wet when they are carrying across the last bundle the khan solicitous for my safety wants me to hang on to a short rope tied around the waist of the strongest of the nomads naturally disdaining any such arrangements as this however i declare my intention of crossing without assistance and wade in forthwith ere i have progressed thirty yards the current fairly sweeps me off my feet and i have to swim for it fancying that i am overcome and in a fair way of being drowned the sowers set up a wild howl of apprehension and shout excitedly to the nomads to rescue me from a watery grave the afghans are not so excited however over the outlook 
they see that i am swimming all right and they confine themselves to motioning the direction for me to take the current carries me some little distance downstream when i find footing on the lower extremity of the sandbar and on it wade up stream again with some difficulty against swiftly rushing water four feet deep the khan thinks i have had the narrowest possible escape and in tones of desperation he shouts out and begs me not to attempt to cross the other channel without assistance the receipt he shouts the receipt allah preserve us the receipt heshmeti molk the worthy khan is afflicted with a keen consciousness of coming punishment awaiting him at birjand should i happen to come to grief while under his protection and he no doubt suffers an agony of apprehension during the fifteen minutes i am battling with the rapid current of the harood the second channel is found less swift and comparatively easy to ford the sturdy nomads having transported all of my escort's damageable effects those three now stark naked worthies mount with fear and trembling their equally stark naked steeds naked all save for the turbans of the men and the bridles of their horses whatever of intrepidity the khan possesses is of a quantity scarcely visible to the naked eye and it is therefore scarcely surprising to find him trying to persuade first the mudbake and then the mirza to take the initiative his efforts prove wholly ineffectual however to bring the feebly flowing tide of their courage up to the high-water level of assuming the duties of leadership and so in the absence of any alternative he finally screws up his own courage and leads the way the others allow their horses to follow closely behind the horses seem to regard the rushing volume of yellow water about them with far less apprehension than do their riders while dressing myself on the eastern bank the frightened mutterings of allah from these gallant horsemen come floating across the water and as they reach the sandbar in the middle of the stream i can hear their muttered importunities for providential protection change like the passing shadow whims of nature's children that they are into gleeful chuckles at their escape when the khan emerges from the water the ruling passion within his avaricious nature asserts itself with ridiculous promptness with the water dripping from his dangling feet he rides hastily to where i am dressing and whispers pool nice afghani dashta dam pool nice by this he desires me to understand that the men who have been so industrious and ready in helping us across being afghan nomads will not expect any bakshish for their trouble the above-mentioned ruling passion is wonderfully strong in the rude breast of the khan and in view of his own secret machinations against my money he no doubt entertains objections to leakages in other directions so far as presenting these hospitable souls of the desert with money for their services is concerned the khan's advice probably contains a good deal more wisdom than would appear from a superficial view of the case merely assisting travellers across streams and through difficult places evidently appeals to these people as the most natural thing in the world for them to do it is a part of the unwritten code of the hospitality of their uncivilized country and is in all probability undertaken without so much as a mercenary thought presenting them with a money consideration for their services certainly has a tendency to awaken the latent spirit of cupidity generally resulting in their transformation from simple and unsophisticated children hospitable both by nature and tradition into wretched mercenaries 
who regard the chance traveler solely from a bakshish-giving standpoint. The baneful result of this is today glaringly apparent along every tourist route in the East, and among the pool-loving subjects of the Shah of Persia, travelers do not have to appear very frequently to keep alive and foster a wild yearning for bakshish that effectually suppresses all loftier considerations. These Afghans, however, seem to be people of an altogether different mold. The ubiquitous Western traveler has not yet become a palpable factor in their experiences. The hidden charms of bakshish will not become apparent to the wild Afghans until their fierce Muslim fanaticism has cooled sufficiently to allow the Ferengi tourist to wander through their territory without being in danger of his life. The danger of corruption in the present instance is exceedingly small, considering that I am the only representative of the Occident that has ever happened along this way, and the probability that none other will follow for many a year after. Therefore, I ignore the Khan's wholly disinterested advice and make the two worthy nomads a small present. They accept the proffered Karens with a look of bewilderment, as though quite unable to comprehend why I should tender them money, and they lay it carelessly down on the sand while they assist the sowers to resaddle their horses. To see the indifference with which the magnificent Afghan nomads toss the silver pieces on the sand, and the eager, covetous expression that the sight of the same coins lying there inspires in the three Persians is, of itself, an instructive lesson on the difference between the two peoples. The sowers become inspired, as if touched by the magic wand of alchemy, to the discussion of their favorite theme. But the Afghans pay no more heed to their remarks about money than if they were talking in an unknown tongue. They really act as though they regarded the subject of money as something altogether beyond their comprehension. End of Section 16, Part 2 Recording by Natalie Gray, www.voicebynatalie.com